Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of John called The Crossroad. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7, verses 25 to 31, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Rejecting Jesus. It is incredible that so many of the decisions human beings make are based on prejudice and faulty information. So let me use examples that, you know, don't matter that much. Let's say that a certain car company is exactly the vehicle that you need, but you won't even consider it because you were raised in a family that always said, you know, that brand of an automobile is junk. And you see that your prior ideas blinded you from your present opportunities. Well, here's something a little more serious. You know, at election times, the reason parties use smear campaigns is that you think so negatively about a candidate or a party that you won't even begin to hear what they're offering you. That happens during every election cycle, and the reason it happens is because it works. Get people to assume a negative story about someone, and once they believe it, they won't even act in their own best interest. Negative assumptions ingrained in the mind actually works. Well, let's get even more serious. Let's say you're searching around for meaning in life. You sense a deep emptiness within, and it becomes clear to you what you have and what you're presently living for, it's just not satisfying. It's not providing you with answers. It contains nothing that fills the God-shaped vacuum that's inside of you. Let's then say that you hear someone say to you, have you ever read the Bible? Since Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived, why not find out what so many call the good news about Jesus? Find out about that. Now, that makes eminent sense, but you won't even consider it. Let's say you've become convinced that the Bible is opposed to science or that the church is just out to get your money or that people who believe in Jesus hate homosexuals. Or let's say you've heard that the four gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they're not written by eyewitnesses and that the other so-called gospels, like you know the gospel of Thomas or Judas or Mary Magdalene, let's say that you believe they're authentic Well, in that case, you already assume that the Bible tells you nothing about the real Jesus. And so, on the basis of faulty information, information that you may have assumed years ago, you won't hear and you won't investigate. I mean, after all, you already assume that the answers you seek are not found there. So, when we come to John 7, 25 to 31, it's a scenario just like that which presents itself to us. You know, in this passage, we will find a great many people rejecting Jesus and his claims because they already have a wrong idea of who he is. They assume that the Bible or the Old Testament, which they believe, has already ruled Jesus out as their Messiah. Now, of course, as we will see, all their assumptions are wrong. But they hold to them, and they hold to them tenaciously. And so, here's the question. What's to be done about that? Well, let's study our passage, John 7, 25 to 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. 
Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's start at the beginning by remembering the context of this passage. So Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem, and it's October. It's the time of the celebration of the Jewish Feast of Booths. It's like our celebration of Thanksgiving, only with a twist. The Israelites would live in tents in order to remember that once they were wanderers in a wilderness, but it was God who gave them not just the land, but also houses to live in and crops to harvest, a great blessing. And Jesus is there, and he's doing what most rabbis would have done. He's found in a corner of the temple, and he's teaching his disciples. But others spot him, and they confront him because they're seeking to discredit him. And at one point in time in the debate between Jesus and the religious leaders, while we see verse 19, Jesus asks, Why are you seeking to kill me? And then in verse 20, the crowd who is watching the debate between Jesus and the religious leaders, while they say, you have a demon, no one is seeking to kill you. But then, just a few verses later, yeah, I mean, we come to our passage, which we're studying today, verse 25 says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Seems like a contradiction, so what gives? Well, the answer has everything to do with this feast. During the Feast of Booths, Jerusalem would be filled with people who traveled there from Galilee. Jesus spent most of his ministry in Galilee, and he did most of his miracles there. Even though he demanded a higher degree of commitment from his potential followers than they were prepared to give, and even though many of them had abandoned him by this time, he was still popular. And the pilgrims from Galilee thought it must be absurd that the Jewish religious leaders would plot to kill him. That's why they think him crazy or demon-possessed. I mean, to imagine that the Jewish religious leaders would be planning something so evil, that's just impossible. But as verse 25 tells us, on the other hand, the people from Jerusalem knew better. I mean, after all, they lived up close and personal with the religious leaders, and they were quite accustomed to their dirty tricks and their evil designs. And they knew that the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead, and they knew that they were plotting this. But the people from Jerusalem are also surprised. You know, verse 26 says, And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And so a possibility arises in their minds. I mean, perhaps the authorities have become afraid of him because they know he's the Messiah. But the possibility isn't entertained for very long. <laughs> Someone says, Yet we know that this isn't the Messiah or the Christ. We know where this man is from. So there's a double theme here. You see, on the one hand, back in verse 13 of the same chapter, we read, For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Remember that when John uses the word, the Jews, he's not using it as we use it today. See, for John, the Jews always refers to the Jewish religious leaders. For fear of the religious leaders, people were quite guarded about what they said about Jesus. And so the unwillingness to discuss fully as to whether or not Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah must be seen up against this pressure to conform. That's still true today. There's always a pressure that stops people from considering Jesus more fully. But there's another matter here. Verse 27 says, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, here's what I meant when I said that preconceived ideas, when they're wrong, prevent us from making a right judgment. I mean, how deeply ingrained are these preconceptions? I mean, go back to John 6, 42. 
They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? That's to say, you know, it's well established that Jesus came from Nazareth. His father was a carpenter and his family was hardly a well-to-do family. Now go ahead to the end of chapter 7, verse 42, and we hear some people saying, has not the scripture said that the Christ or the Messiah comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So you have to remember that, you know, when the Magi, the wise men, showed up in Jerusalem at the time of Herod, when Jesus was born, Herod calls all the theologians into the room. Where is the Messiah to be born? And the theologians immediately take Herod to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It shows from the prophet Micah that there had been a prophecy that was made. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's the city of David. And so here we have it. Yeah, Jesus had grown up in Nazareth but he was born in Bethlehem. Yeah, that's because there had been a decree made by Caesar Augustus, and that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, if you had been even a bit curious, you might have taken the time to find out the details. But it seems to me, as I listened to this discussion, the people of Jerusalem were not curious at all. Instead of finding out the truth for themselves, people do what people always do. They form their opinions upon that which they've heard other people saying. But what everyone else has been saying has been wrong. And on the basis of wrong assumptions, they come to wrong conclusions, which means they reject Jesus out of hand for reasons that are entirely wrong. And what a horrible way to determine your spiritual future. But then again, isn't it true that this kind of thing is done all the time? People begin with wrong assumptions and then reject the truth out of hand, never having considered it. It's called a tragedy. And that's exactly what happened during Jesus' day. Have you heard? Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again are inviting you on a cruise. February 7th to the 16th, 2020, we'll be setting sail for the Southern Caribbean. And we want you to join us for a nine-night cruise adventure that will leave you not only physically refreshed, but spiritually as well. Experience ports of call, including Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. Dr. John Newfeld will be joining us, providing amazing Bible teaching that will inspire and deepen your walk with Jesus. Phil Calloway will lift your spirits and perhaps make you laugh in a way you've never laughed in years. And be encouraged by the music of friends Shane and Angela Weave. It's a fantastic opportunity for a vacation while experiencing great Bible teaching, laughter, and fellowship. So for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or head over to backtothebibletours.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebibletours.ca. You know, sometimes, you know, as we've seen, we reject something. We make decisions about things that are very important in life because we take the word of others and we don't look into matters for ourselves. Now, for a great many things we do, well, that just has to be. For instance, when I eat food, I don't take the time nor the opportunity to check whether or not that specific bit of food that I'm eating meets the safety standards required for my consumption. 
I simply trust that the government is doing a good job in regulating our food supply. And there are hundreds of examples just like this. We are required to take the word of others. We can't investigate everything. And so, you know, you might excuse the people of Jesus' day who simply passed him by. I mean, they were willing to dismiss Jesus. It was all based on faulty information. After all, I mean, what were they to do but trust their religious teachers? They simply assumed that they had been given the right information. Can I add something to that? You know, many of us who are Christians rightly trust our pastors. They must be telling us the truth. Now, perhaps, I've been a pastor for many years now, but I did my best to interpret Scripture and to apply it to people's lives. But I have a memory of a conversation that I had some time ago, and it still haunts me. I was having a conversation in the lobby with a woman who had, you know, I'd seen often in church. I had noticed that she had never brought a Bible. So I asked her if she had one, and could we as a church supply her with one? And she said, no, no, that's okay. I actually don't need a Bible when I come to church. Rather, she said, quite blissfully, I just like listening to you. Well, I told her, but how do you know whether or not I'm right or wrong? Or even worse, maybe I'm trying to deceive you. And then she answered quite sweetly that she was sure that that wasn't true. Now, that's not as bizarre as you might imagine. Go to the average North American church today, and you're going to find that most people don't even bring a Bible. Even if they have one on their phone apps, I don't even see them gazing at it. I mean, they sit in the pew, they listen to the sermon, they never have a text of sacred scripture in their hand, they don't examine it to find out what's true. I once spoke with a woman who went to church in which the pastor of her church denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ. See, I asked, why in the world would you support that ministry and subject your kids to false teaching? And she looked genuinely confused. And then she told me, well, he's actually a good teacher and he seems so authentic and he cares so deeply about people. And so she assumed from that, well, she could trust him. And she was quite willing to entrust her eternal soul into his hands. Listen, this is key. The reason we had a Protestant Reformation is to insist that every man, woman, and child should have a Bible in their hands, and they should examine it for themselves. Now, I know that is true, that good pastors who follow the Word can give insight into the Scripture that an average Bible reader might not see on their own. I know that. But, 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 the willingness that I see everywhere of people to entrust their eternal souls into the hands of contemporary teachers who often say things without even studying the text for themselves, well, it's stunning. And some of the largest churches in North America are led by people who don't actually explain the text verse by verse to their people. And then without a basis for authority, their people simply eat the food that comes out of their hands without even asking if the food is poison to their souls. Now, that's sobering. Let's get back to John 7. The people first say that they know where Jesus comes from simply because of hearsay. And then they add something even more confusing. They say that when the Messiah comes, they won't know where he comes from. Now, they say that again because of what they've heard. 
Now, Don Carson, in his excellent commentary on John, says that this most likely was because in some of the writings of the rabbis, they said that the Messiah was born of flesh and blood and yet would be unknown until the day he appeared to redeem Israel. And so, since Jesus was known, first in Nazareth and then in his ministry in Galilee, before he appeared in Jerusalem, well, they just assumed he couldn't be the Messiah. That's how they felt, because they'd been taught that, and that's how convoluted their reasoning became. And so Jesus answers in verse 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now, verse 28 requires some explanation. You know, in the Greek language, you can't actually determine whether a sentence is a question or simply a statement. You know, in ancient Greek, they didn't have either an explanation mark or a question mark or a period at the end of a sentence. And so a reader has to decide for himself or herself how to understand a sentence. And so, I mean, did Jesus say, it is true that you know where I came from? Or did he ask, you know where I come from, question mark? Or is there an irony in the statement? You don't really know where I come from, and that's really something. See, I think there's a bit of sarcasm in Jesus' voice. You know, he's saying, now isn't this amazing? You seem to have done considerable research to come up with your conclusions so that on the basis of thorough study, you know who I am and where I come from. That's really something. You know, I notice as I read this passage how little genuine curiosity these people have. You know, just a little while earlier, the people were marveling at his teaching. I mean, they were wondering how a man who was raised in an uneducated family in Nazareth was able to trade in such wisdom. Well, then what's the answer to that? No answer was forthcoming. And more, if they had bothered to talk to the pilgrims from Galilee, what accounts for all the miracles? Again, no answer is forthcoming. But added to that, no one seems to have even the curiosity to ask further questions. Again, it might have been, you know, fear of the religious teachers in Jerusalem. I mean, none of them wanted to be persecuted, so they don't ask. Or it may also have been that it's, it's, it's hard to question the prevailing wisdom of the day. You know, the religious teachers don't believe this guy. And that tells me that almost no one believes that the majority can be in the wrong. Indeed, there isn't so many minds In that day and today, the conviction, the majority isn't wrong. And so against such darkness of heart and mind, Jesus says, I have not come on my own accord. I have been sent, and then furthermore, God sent me. The very God you don't know. In terms of John's gospel, this idea that they don't know God, well, that's a repeated theme. John 1, 9 to 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Or John 3:19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people, the majority, loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So it turns out, according to John, that the reason we don't look deeply into the matters that determine the future of our eternal souls is because we despise the light and what we might discover there. Rather than seriously looking into the truth of Jesus, we just go with the majority. That's the verdict. And that's not benign. It's a love of darkness. And it's still true today. Now, with that in mind, let's go forward to verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him 
because his hour had not yet come. Now, you might think that when Jesus said such inflammatory things, and given the fact that the religious teachers were determined to kill him, that this would have been enough. The teachers should have called the temple police and they would have immediately arrested him. But they don't do it. Now, it might have been, and probably was, that there were so many pilgrims from Galilee around and, and the authorities didn't want to take a chance of, you know, having a riot. They didn't know how the whole thing would turn out. But John adds something that comes from God's perspective. The reason Jesus wasn't arrested was this. The divinely appointed hour had not yet come. Although Jesus was surrounded by danger, in reality, he was actually in no danger at all. It was not the will of God that he should die at this time. It was as simple as that. God's timing is always perfect. And with that, we come to verse 31. Verse 31 says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, by the way, isn't this always the case? Some, even though they don't have all the evidence, and who can have all the evidence? But some will say, but you can't discount the miracles. You have to examine that. Or, you know, as in our day, we might say, but you can't discount the resurrection. You might want to examine whether or not that happened. Some will say, as the man who was born blind that we'll meet in chapter 9, they will simply say, you know, I once was blind, but now I can see. I can't discount that. So the evidence around Jesus is always such that there is enough that those who want to see the truth will see it immediately. Rejecting Jesus should never be the option we choose. John, this is interesting because I'm thinking about all the assumptions that I've made that have been shaped by all different types of things that have gone on in my life, and they also sort of spill over into my assumptions about Scripture. Yeah, you know... It's amazing. I don't think that you and I, Ben, are going to live long enough uh, to come to terms with all the false things that we already believe. And uh, But I am convinced that as we give ourselves to the regular reading of Scripture, as we pay attention to the teaching of Christ, it's amazing how one false idea after another slowly starts to fall away. So I think it's a repeated, habitual clinging to Christ and continually reading the Scripture that you know, Ben, I, th I think it just starts to make the difference. So if we think that we're going to correct all our problems by making a list of all of the errors that we hold, I don't think we're going to get there. But I think um, just the truth itself will eventually win out as we give ourselves to it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for more on this series, The Crossroad, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift. Finding Pleasure with God, 
To the King and a limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.